All right, let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for this time. Thank you for your word. Lord, we uh, are so privileged to be able to study your word like this. And uh, we know that uh, our understanding of your word is um, its not the result of how hard we work. It's the result of your spirit opening our eyes to understand what you've caused to be written for our instruction. So we pray that that while we, we do desire to be diligent in our study, we pray that, that you would open our eyes so that we can behold wonderful things from your word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. So we are in... Started, we're starting chapter 3 of Colossians tonight. And... Uh, as I'm looking at my outline, I'm, I, I'm realizing, and I feel like this has happened for some of the other books that we've done, realizing we only have three weeks left. So we have tonight and two more, two more meetings, and yet we have two full chapters to go. So I feel like as, as, I'm, uh, as I'm mapping things out when, I, when I'm planning this, I'm thinking, oh, this is great. Now listen, if I, somebody better get that. Um, Thinking, I would love, if I could, to spend, uh, spend 20 weeks going through this. We can't do that, but that's usually how I start. I'm like, okay, we're going to start with ver- two verses. And then by the end, we're done like, okay, so we're going to do like a whole chapter the last week around. So, but this is where we are. We're starting in chapter, uh, chapter 3, verse 1 today. And uh, like usual, I've, I've made a change in my outline. Um, it's uh, constantly in flux. So rather than having um, this, this section of Paul's letter go just up through, uh, through uh, 3.1 to 4.1, I've extended it and pushed it to 4.6. Uh, and so I'll probably change so that the next time uh, we're together, we'll look at 3.18 to 4.6 instead of 3.18 to 4.1. And then the last week we're together, we'll look at 4.7 to the end of the book. So part of that was as I looked at this and I started to try to figure out how some of these pieces fit together, this, this felt like it, it fit differently. So Paul's moved from talking about his ministry to the Colossians and reminding them of, of the sufficiency of Christ uh, and the insufficiency of, uh, of everything else that's not according to Christ. Uh, and he's basically told them, here's all of the, the counterfeit spiritualities that you're, you're not to bow to, that you're not to live your life According to you have Christ and Christ is enough, and now he's going to actually get into talking about, so what does that new life in Christ that you have, the sufficiency in Christ that you have, what does that look like in practice? Because it's not just sitting back and waiting for Jesus to come back. We actually do things, but what does that look like, and how does it differ from this uh, these counterfeit spiritualities that they're being confronted with. And so tonight, we're going to look at this part. So verses 1 to 4 is the foundations of the new life, this new life in Christ. And then verses 5 to 17 as a, as a big section is, is a series of instructions about the new life. So this is uh, if, if this is the foundation for your new life in Christ, 
then here's what it actually looks like to, to live it out. In some ways, this is like an explanation of uh, what Paul has said about walking in a manner worthy of the Lord. Okay, so what, is that, what does that actually look like in some very practical, tangible ways? And so we're actually, tonight we're only going to look at the first part of that section about instructions for the new life, putting off the practices of the old humanity, Next, uh, next, not next week, but the week after, we're going to look at um, the second part of that, which is putting on the practices of the new humanity, and then two examples that he gives. This is, I think, a way for us to maybe understand how he fits these things here. Two examples of what it looks like to live this new life in actual situations, in the household, and so he deals with marriage and parenting and and work, and this is where he talks about slaves, and so we'll get into some of that. Uh, and then uh, how you relate to outsiders, uh, which is uh, as we get into the beginning of chapter 4. And uh, I'll be stealing liberally from Randy Newman's sermon on that section uh, when we get there. That was a joke. But it's don't quit your day job, John. Right? Okay. So that's where we are. Now, in verses 1 to 11, in chapter 3, you have, this is how I've got it broken down. So verse 1 to 4, the foundations of the new life. Uh, in that section, there's, I've got two subsections. The foundational truth for the new life is that you're united to Christ, right? We've talked about this over and over again throughout the book, that this is the, the foundational, fundamental truth of the Christian uh, life of your salvation is that you are one with Christ, that you are in Christ, and because you're in Christ, you have everything that is Christ, His righteousness, His holiness, His standing with God, His Spirit. And then the foundational practice of the new life, which is to focus on Christ, and we'll talk about that. And then verses 5 to 17, the instructions for the new life. Tonight, we're only looking at uh, these instructions about putting off the practices of the old humanity and those, those two big ideas, put your sin to death and put your evil practices aside. So that's what we're looking at tonight. All right, let's start with one to four. Now remember, in 16, uh, two, chapter 2, 16 to 23, He's just kind of exposed the, the insufficiency of all these other kind of counterfeit spiritualities. So legalism, just trying to obey the rules, asceticism, treating your body harshly, uh, and uh, mysticism, focusing on, on, on these mystical spiritual experiences. Those are all things that are being pressured uh, by, by the culture around them or other religions to, to, to do. And Paul says th those things have no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. They're not according to Christ, so don't pay attention to them. And then he, he shifts gears and he's like, okay, so this is, now this is how you're supposed to live. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things that are on earth. 
For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. He starts with therefore. So thinking back to chapter 2, Christ is sufficient, everything else is, is insufficient. And now he's, he's, he's mentioned a couple of these things already. This idea of being raised up with Christ, or you have died, that is died with Christ. He talks about these in chapter 2, right? He says, you were buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God. So he's, he's, he's going back to those things. Say, Therefore, if those things are true about you, this is, he's, he's, he's going to give instructions. He's going to give, give uh, this foundational practice for the Christian life, this command for what Christians are to do. But he bases it in this foundational truth that you've been united to Christ. And actually, this, uh, this if... Uh, can also be since. So, since you have been raised up with Christ. So, it's not uh, him telling them, like, if maybe you've been raised with Christ, then you can do this. It's like, no, because this has happened to you, this is what you're supposed to do. So, this foundational truth that you've been united to Christ, you've been raised up with Christ, is when, when Christ rose from, from the dead, and, and when you were united to Him by faith, it was as if you rose from the dead too. Now, this is, this is an example of the, the kind of already not yet tension. And we've talked about this some in the book already, that remember, we exist in this, this period where the, the old age or the present age, and the age to come, or the new age, have overlapped. And we're existing in this place where, where physically we still exist in this old, this present age that's still characterized by sin and evil. And yet spiritually, Christ, through coming, taking on flesh, dying, and rising again, has, has brought this new age into the present age so that we are spiritually, because we're indwelt by the Spirit, we're living in the power of this coming age. And one day, Jesus will return and will put this, this present evil age, uh, uh, bring it to an end, and will reign in righteousness and, and everything will, will be made new. But so we can say we've been raised up with Christ, not because we're already uh, glorified, right? It's not saying that you actually have uh, undergone the resurrection. This is actually something that Paul would have to argue against. There were people in other places who were teaching Christians that the resurrection had already happened, that this, this final resurrection of believers had already happened, and they were saying, well, since you uh, haven't been raised in that way, you must not have believed in Christ or you, you missed it. Um, so he's, he has to say in those places, somewhere like First, First Timothy, Second Timothy, I say, no, 
you haven't missed it. That's still in the future. And yet there is a, really, a, a real way in which you have been raised with Christ already. You've been raised with Christ. Um, you have died. Again, not physically, but because you're one with Christ, when He died, that death counts for your death. And now His life counts for your life, right? Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ, so I've died with Him, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So we're free. We've died with Christ. And so we see earlier in chapter 2, because we died with Christ, we're free from the condemning power of sin and the law. We're free from the guilt of sin because Jesus took our punishment. So because you're one with Christ, you've been raised up with him, which is a guarantee that you're going to be raised with him in the future. You've died with him, and uh, your life is hidden with him. So we have new life, we have new freedom from sin, from guilt, and we have this profound security because our life is hidden with Christ. And this, this idea of hidden, I think, is supposed to highlight the nature of this security that our life, the life that we live by faith, that Christ lives in us, it's, it's secure with Him, it's hidden with Him, and Christ is with God. And so this is similar to in, in John 10, when Jesus says, I know my sheep, they hear my voice and they follow me, no one can snatch them from my hand, and my Father, who is greater than all, uh, holds me, and so you have these, you have this, uh, you're in good hands with all state, with Jesus, right? That, that you're hidden with Christ, Christ is, is in God, and so there's, there's this profound security that we have because we're united to Christ, and this is crucial because Paul is going to ground all of his instructions about the, the life that Christians are to live in, in these truths, these truths about the security of the believer, right? And then he says, uh, when Christ who is our life is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him. So you've been raised up with him, you died with him, your life is hidden with him, and you will be revealed with him in the future. So past, present, and future, because you're united to Christ, you have all of these, these things. So that when He comes, we're going to be with Him. And not just with Him, we're going to be with Him in glory. That is, we're going to have new glorified bodies. This is a, this is a promise. This isn't a, uh, a conditional statement and says, well, you'll be revealed with Him in glory if you make sure you follow all the rules. I says, no. If you've been raised with Him, died with Him, your life is hidden with Him, then you will be revealed with Him in glory. Now, everything that Paul is going to say for the next, you know, up until 
the, you know, the middle of chapter 4, when he gets done kind of saying these commands that we're supposed to live out, all of that is based on these truths. These are the foundational truths of the Christian life. And that matters because it's the thing that, that sets um, Christianity apart from these other spiritualities that we're telling people, here are the rules you need to follow, but they have the order backwards, right? They had the purpose for which you were following the rules backwards. It wasn't because you were already secure and united to Christ and forgiven and made new. It was so that you could get all of those things rather than saying, no, because you're in Christ, you have everything that you need, and so you can do these things. Some people would say that having this kind of security in Christ, this and not just security, but knowing that you have it. Knowing that you've been raised with Christ, that you've died with Christ, that your life is hidden with Christ, that you will be revealed with Christ. Not just that those things are true, but that you know those things are true for you. Some people would say, well, that actually will prevent people from pursuing holiness. Because if I know I'm secure, then why wouldn't I just go and do whatever I want, right? Yeah, may it never be. Exactly. Paul addresses that elsewhere. He addresses it in Romans 6 because he spends all of this time in Romans 1 to 5 talking about how uh, you can do nothing to save yourself. Only God can save you, and he does it by faith alone, by grace alone, and it's to magnify his grace. And then he says, so somebody might say, well, why don't we just keep on sinning then? Paul says, that makes no sense, because if you've died to sin, how can you go on living in it? That is, if you've been made new, then that's not going to be what you desire. And if you claim to have your sins forgiven, and yet you don't care about whether or not you live in obedience to Christ, that's actually evidence against you. Maybe you actually haven't come to know Christ because Christ doesn't only forgive your sins. He also puts His Spirit in you to make you new and change your heart and your desires. It doesn't mean that we always desire the things that God wants. It means that if you never desire the things that God wants, your sins are probably not forgiven. Right? This was actually the, one of the big problems uh, in the Reformation. The Roman Catholic Church... Uh, was, I mean, for, for all the things, they, they didn't like Luther for a whole host of reasons, uh, including the fact that he was just kind of a jerk. And I love Martin Luther, but he, he had a mouth. And, um, and so, but the thing that they really couldn't stand was that the Protestants were not just saying that you could be justified by faith, but that you could know that you were justified by faith. They might even be willing to say, well, yeah, you can be justified by faith, maybe even faith alone, but you can't know it. You can't know it unless you have some kind of special revelation from God. And that's, that was so, so this idea of assurance that, that you could know on the basis of the promises of the Word of God that you were justified, died with Christ, raised up with Christ, hidden with Christ, that you could know that. It's actually the most controversial thing they were dealing with. And so we think, yeah, you, you can know, 
But that ought not, and, and really cannot, if it's true, cannot make you want to sin. I mean, example, um, I feel uh, very uh, confident in my relationship with my wife uh, that she's not going to cheat on me, that she's not going to divorce me, that she's But that security doesn't make me want to go and test it, right, and say, oh, I know you're not going to divorce me, so I'm going to go and and cheat on you, because I know you're not going to divorce me, but I still want what I want. I would never do that, because I love her, and that would destroy her, right? And so, if you're a Christian and you're made new, this is the way that you think about God. Even if logically you're thinking, well, if I'm secure, then I can do whatever you want, you'd say, no, I I don't want to do that because your spirit dwells in me, and I don't want to grieve you over this. And he's changing us on the inside so that we more and more uh, desire what he desires. So, this truth of union with Christ is the foundation of of our new life. And then what's the, the foundational? If that's the foundational truth, the thing that grounds everything about the new life that we have in Christ, then what's the foundational practice, the foundational habit of the new life? And that's what is uh, what I call focusing on Christ. So, if you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And then he repeats it again. Set your mind on things above, not on things that are on earth. So the first statement, seeking the things that are above, is a little bit more ambiguous. This phrase, set your mind on things above, is a little bit more concrete. And so maybe explains a little bit more what it means to seek the things that are above. How do you seek the things that are above? Paul says, well, at least for starters, it's by setting your mind on things above. What we think about matters. Now, what are the things that are above as opposed to the things that are on earth? Because you might be tempted just by reading that to think, Well, he's talking about spiritual things versus material things, spiritual things versus physical things. And that's actually uh, closer to Gnosticism than it is to Christianity. So Gnosticism, I think we've talked about this a little bit, was, was an ancient heresy that basically says anything that's created matter is actually evil. Right? So physical things are evil, and the goal of spirituality is to release yourself from the physical so you can return to the pure spiritual. And they base that on the fact that uh, God didn't actually create the world. God created uh, a, a sub-God who created another sub-God who created another sub-God who eventually created the world and, and made it evil. So it's, it's all sorts of backwards and wrong. But that thinking has seeped into a lot of Christians' minds. It's like, well, the goal is to be released from this physical 
uh, wickedness so we can return to the pure spirituality, forgetting that actually in the future we're going to live physically in a new heaven and a new earth with bodies that are real, like the ones you're in now, perfected, glorified, but physical. And so I don't think what he's talking about is set your mind on uh, non-physical spiritual things as opposed to material things. I think what he's talking about is setting your minds on the things of Christ, setting your minds on, because he says, seek things that are above where Christ is. So it's a, a, a focus on, on Christ and the things of Christ, not the things that characterize uh, our existence on earth. Now, in 1 Corinthians 15, 47 to 49, uh, Paul uses similar language to talk about um, these, these two kind of realms of existence that humanity's in, right? So we, we talked about this. Um, everybody born is born in Adam, right? They're born related to Adam, and Adam's guilt and corruption and sin characterizes them. That's one race. That's humanity, old humanity. And then the new humanity is a humanity that's related to the second Adam, Christ. Christ is the head of a new human race. It's made new by the Spirit. So this is what Paul says. He's just contrasting Adam and Christ. The first man... Adam is from the earth. He's earthy. The second man is from heaven. As is the earthy, so also are those who are earthy. As is the heavenly, so also are those who are heavenly. And just as we have borne the image of the earthy, we will also bear the image of the heavenly. So he's creating this distinction between the old humanity that's characterized by sin and wickedness, and he calls that being earthy, not because the earth is bad, but because it's part of the realm of this first Adam. And the things above are the things that characterize the second Adam, the one who came from above. So I think the idea of uh, seeking the things that are above means uh, seeking the things that are characterized by Christ and where Christ is, and all the things of earth refer to the things that characterize being in Adam. So that means, he says, seek the things that are above, set your mind on the things that are above and not on the things that are on earth. So focus on the things that characterize Christ. Focus on Christ. That's the, the fundamental practice of the Christian life. Right? If I were to ask you what the most important practice of the Christian life is, now hopefully you would say focusing on Christ since I just said that, 
But I think we would have maybe a lot of different answers, maybe prayer or reading the Bible or going to church, worship, and, and so forth. But I think this idea of focusing on Christ or looking to Jesus is the fundamental practice of the Christian life. Isaac Ambrose, who, fun aside, I tried to get uh, my son named after, and it didn't take. Um, it was a Puritan minister, and he wrote a book on what he believed was this neglected Christian practice. His book's called Looking to Jesus. I have it in my office. It's 800 pages long of a little tiny type. This guy had a lot of time on his hands. He didn't have the internet, so he couldn't waste his time watching YouTube videos all day. So he wrote an 800-page book on what it means to look to Jesus. In some senses, make, makes me wish I lived in the 17th century, but I like antibiotics and, and cars and, and Starbucks, so I, 21st century is good for me. But the idea that he could write that much, and, and he said in the intro to the, to the book, looking to Jesus is the quintessence, it's the, it's the very essence of what it means to be a Christian, is to look to Jesus. And in some respects, all of the other spiritual disciplines that we pursue, reading the Bible, prayer, uh, the Lord's Supper, baptism, worship, fasting, so forth, are really just tools that help us look to Jesus. And that's the, the lens that we have to practice them in. Because if we don't, then those things begin to drift into legalism. It's like that somehow God is more pleased with me because I prayed this much, I read this much of the Bible, I know this, and so forth. Um, and so one of the things that you'll consider in, in your time together is uh, consider how you practice spiritual disciplines. And how Christ-centered or Christ-focused are they? Um, and, and this is something, even as I studied this this past week in the last couple of days, it was very convicting to me because it's so easy to just keep doing things and not be conscious of saying, I'm doing this because I want a clearer, more glorious picture of Jesus. Because Paul says in 2 Corinthians that we are transformed from one degree of glory to another by beholding the glory of the Lord. And so everything that I do ought to be about focusing my mind on beholding more of His glory. Uh, one thing that's been especially helpful to me, and this is, I'm going to quote from, from Isaac Ambrose, um, prayer is a hard spiritual discipline for me. I don't know why. There, uh, there are other people who just love prayer, and it's so, it comes so naturally. And for some reason, it does not come naturally to me. It's hard work uh, for me, and it's very frustrating sometimes. And I remember reading this quote from, from Ambrose and feeling this great freedom and encouragement because I started to realize maybe I've been doing it wrong. Okay? So he wrote, another, he wrote lots of big books. Um, he wrote another book on just sanctification, and he's talking about prayer, and he, go, he has this whole long section about how you practice prayer, things that you should think about, things that you should pray for, and all the normal stuff. But he says this at the very beginning of a section on prayer. He says, we must draw off from prayer 
We must draw off from resting in it or trusting upon it. A man may pray much, and instead of drawing near to God or enjoying sweet communion with Christ, he may draw near to prayer. And his thoughts may be more upon his prayer than upon God to whom he prays. And he may live more upon his cushion, that is, where he kneels to pray, than upon Christ. But when a man indeed draws near to God in prayer, he forgets prayer and remembers God. And prayer goes for nothing, but Christ is all. I thought to myself, I spend so much time praying, thinking about how, how good or bad my prayers are, rather than thinking about Christ to whom I'm praying. I thought, if, if I want to grow in prayer, maybe the, the idea is not to read another book on prayer. Maybe the idea is not to think more about the techniques I'm using for prayer. Maybe it's I got to think more about Christ, and then it'll come more naturally because I won't be thinking about it at all. Right. So we have this foundation being united to Christ. We are uh, we are we are called to seek the things that are above in this foundational practice of the new life. Because we're united to Christ, we're to focus on Christ. But that's not the only thing that we're to do. That comes first, that comes foundationally, but that's not the only thing to do. Now there are things that Paul's going to say ought really to characterize the new life. So he starts giving these instructions for the new life and said we're going to look at two. So in uh, verses 5 to 11, it's put off the practices of the old Humanity with two subpoints: put your sin to death and put your evil practices aside. So verses five to seven is put your sin to death. So therefore, again, he's grounding his command in what's come before. Because you're united to Christ, therefore, put to death the members of your earthly body. Now, if you have the New American Standard, it says in verse 5, therefore consider the members of your earthly body as dead. Now, I do not understand why they translate it that way. Beyond the fact that basically no other major translation translates it that way, and the fact that the word is actually a command to put something to death, they say in their footnote on this verse, it says, therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead. The footnote says, literally, it means put to death the members which are upon the earth. I cannot figure out why they translated it that way. And so I crossed it off. Yeah. Right, but there's a difference between, it's a, yeah, so there's a difference between considering it dead and putting it to death. That, so that's the, that's the difference. That, yeah, because it's not, yeah, because it's not, it's not there. Um, and so put, uh, put it to death. So in your books, I took the liberty of changing it because 
I think that's what it says. And they even say it. They say literally that's what it says. I think it makes sense, and so I don't see why they would change it. But whatever. So there's a new, uh, a, an update of the NASB that's coming out at the beginning of 2021, and my hope is this will be one that they correct. I should probably write to them and make sure that they do that. Uh, so uh, the first command that he gives is put, put your sin to death. Make war on your sin. And in, in verse 5, it seems like he has, at least at first, primary, primarily a sexual sin in mind. It says, put to death the members of your earthly body. Or the ESV says, put to death what is earthly within you. Immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. I want you to notice there's a progression uh, here, uh, it seems to be, from uh, the outside sins to the inside. So immorality, impurity, these are things that uh, could be observed. Immorality would refer to just kind of any kind of sexual immorality, impurity. So both of those things are things that, that are actions, exterior actions that can be observed and then it goes to passion and to evil desire. Well, those things are, are harder to see. You see them because they result in things like immorality and impurity, but they can exist inside without you necessarily seeing them. And then it, it goes a step further to greed. I think what Paul's doing is, is he's saying it's, he's moving from the outside to the inside, and at the very center of this sin is greed or covetousness, which amounts to idolatry. He's, he's thinking of the 10th commandment uh, here, and that these other sins, these evil desires and evil passions, and, and then the immorality and impurity of our actions that, that flow out of those passions and desires are ultimately rooted deep in, in greed. Really, all of this is rooted in the heart. It's not about what's happening on the outside. It's about what's happening on the inside. That all sin is rooted in idolatry. Idolatry is, is preferring or worshiping something other than God. Exchanging the worship of God for the worship of things that God has created, first and foremost, exchanging the worship of God for the worship of self. And it's interesting that um, Paul would say, uh, and, and this is actually, since we already mentioned Luther, I might as well go back and quote him again. Luther uh, wrote a little um, catechism, and in the catechism he talks about the Ten Commandments, and he says, um, Anytime you break any of the any of uh, commandments two through ten, you're also breaking commandment one, which is you will have no other gods before me. So anytime you break any of the other commandments, including the tenth commandment, uh, don't covet. You're breaking that and the commandment not to have any other gods before you, because idolatry is the root of all of these other sins. He says you need to put these things to death. Why? 
because on account of these things, he gives, he gives two reasons. Why do we have to put these things to death? One, it's because of these things that the wrath of God will come. And then in brackets, you have, uh, upon the sons of disobedience. We're not entirely sure whether or not that phrase actually belongs there. Um, it may have been a, a scribal insertion because it is there in the book of Ephesians in a very similar uh, uh, verse. And so somebody copying the letter may at some point have been thinking, uh, you know, remembering what it says in Ephesians and inserted it and didn't necessarily mean to. So either way, um, the idea is the wrath of God is coming upon these things. And so, now, if you're secure in Christ, you're thinking, well, why am I concerned about the wrath of God coming on, a, on account of these sins? Say, well, um, if you've been made new, why would you want to go back and live in the way of, the, of those who are going to suffer the wrath of, of God? Why do you want to go back and live in those things that God hates? And a reminder also that if you don't care to put these things to death, you may not be as secure as you think. So one, the wrath of God is coming because of these things. And then two, uh, in them you also once walked when you were living in them. It says, this is how you lived when you were in Adam, when you were in the old humanity, but that's not you anymore. You lived in these things, but that's not who you are, and that's how he starts getting into to, to verse 8. You've put on this, this new humanity. You're new in Christ. This was the old you, but it's not you anymore. So why would you want to continue living in this way? Now, we could spend a lot of time talking about what it means to put uh, sin to death, and um, there's, a, there's a good little book, uh, so Br Brian Hedges wrote one of the commentaries I recommended on Colossians. He also wrote a book called oh, License to Kill, and it's about putting sin to death. It's a little, tiny little book, and um, in, in his commentary on Colossians and then in that book, he, he talks about here's four big picture ideas of what it looks like to put sin to death. One, look to the cross, so we don't put sin to death just by trying harder. We start by seeing that that sin that we're to put to death in our own lives has been paid for by Jesus already, and so we don't put sin to death to earn God's favor. We do it because that sin's already been crucified with Christ. Uh, number two, kill the motives, not just the behaviors, which I think is what, what Paul's getting at here. He doesn't say just put to death immorality and impurity. Just stop doing those things on the outside. He says, I want you to put all of this tough desire, your passions, your inward thoughts, and the greed that resides in your heart that causes you to do all of these things. Kill the motives, not just the behaviors. If you're a gardener, you know, you can cut, you could, like, I can mow my lawn and I can cut the tops off of the weeds but they're going to come back because they're still alive underneath the surface. I just can't see them anymore, right? I need, to, I need to tear up the weeds. Or in the case of my lawn, I need to burn the whole thing and salt the earth so nothing ever grows there again. 
right? How seriously are we willing to kill that sin in our lives? Number three, so look to the cross, kill the motives, not just the behaviors. Number three, make no provision for the flesh. It's Romans 13. So don't, don't do things that are going to give you an opportunity to indulge your sin. You're just going to feed your, your, your sin. And then number four, depend on the Spirit because we don't do it in our own strength. And Paul says in Romans 13 that if we live according to the flesh, we will die. But if, if by the Spirit we put to death the deeds of the flesh, we will live. So we, we, we are the ones who are called to put sin to death, to, to fight against sin in our life, but we're to do it by the Spirit. So, 5 to 7, put your sin to death. And then 8 to 11, put your evil practices aside. But now you also put them all aside. Them, I think, would refer back to uh, the members of your earthly body or all of these things that characterize your earthly sinful existence. Now here he, he, he's focusing more on, on uh, issues of speech, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. And then the beginning of verse 9, the command is do not lie to one another. I think Paul goes the opposite way as he did in, in this list in verse 5. That one goes from the outside to the inside. Here he goes back. He starts on the inside and he goes to the outside. So he starts with internal sin, anger, wrath, malice, things that people often don't see but are there and are very, very serious. And then things that people do see, slander, speaking untruthfully about people, abusive speech, lying to one another, which ultimately come from a heart that's angry and wrathful and malicious. He says you need to put those things aside. And, and then in verse 12, he's going to say, put on. And so it's as if he's, he's thinking, you as Christians need to, 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 to take off the, the habits and the practices of this old sinful humanity the way that you would take off dirty clothing. He may have in mind, and this is maybe purely conjecture, but he may have in mind uh, part of the, the, the baptismal practice, which would have been to have them people take off their, their old clothes and put on these, these white robes to be baptized in, which was symbolic of this purity and new life in Christ. And so he may be playing on this imagery. It's like, just like you took off your old clothes and and put on this, this, this pure white clothing when you were baptized, now you put off all of the old practices and put on these, these righteous practices. So do not lie to one another. Since you laid aside the old self, right? so why are we to, to put all of these things away, not lie to one another? Since, this is, this is the reason. Do this because you laid aside the old self or the old 
Uh, self is the Greek word for, for human or humanity, and so you could say so you laid aside the old humanity. So I don't think it's talking about that, that you have like a split personality disorder and you have a this self and a this self inside you, that you, you've put off uh, be, being in Adam. You've put off being characterized and being a part of this old humanity, and you've put on the new self. Right? So, so that old self is gone. You put it off. It died with Christ, and now you're new. You're part of this new humanity, this new race of people who are in Christ. You're already new. Right? This is, this is passive. It's perfect tense. Uh, something that happened in the past and has continuing implications in the future. You have put on the new self, not you are putting on the new self or you will put on the new self. You have done it. It's true of you already. You are new. And you're being renewed. So you're already new, but you're also being renewed. So it's a true thing that's already happened. It's a, it's a status. You're new, and it's a process. You're new and you're being made new. You're being renewed to a true knowledge according to the, the image of the one who created him. That is, you're, you're being renewed into the image of, of God or the image of Christ. Right? Romans 8.29 talks about those he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. So that God's goal for us ultimately is that we would look like Jesus. And so he's made us new. We have new life. We have this new position. We have this security. And he's working in us. He's, we're being renewed into the image of God. The image of God in us was marred and broken in our sinfulness, not destroyed, but distorted. And in Christ, it's being restored. And then verse 11, he starts to transition into the next section where he says that this renewal is one in which there's no distinction between Greek and Jew and circumcised and uncircumcised and barbarian and Scythian, slave and free man, but Christ is all and in all. He says this so because he's been, he's been talking about what, what Christ is doing in you as a part of this new humanity, but, but now he kind of expands it and it becomes more corporate. It becomes about, about not just you, but about us as these, these people who are in Christ, and that there's no distinction between Greeks and Jews, circumcised and uncircumcised, and that's kind of uh, parallel. So Greek would be the uncircumcised, the Jews the circumcised, barbarians and Scythians, I'm sure you guys talk about them all the time. Barbarians was just a, a generic uh, term for any Gentile, any non-Jew who didn't speak Greek. And if they didn't speak Greek, they were rednecks, okay? They, they were not cultured. The word barbarian is a, a term that the Greeks used to mock them because of the way that they thought they talked, right? The Greeks were very proud of their language, and they said the barbarians, all they say is bar, 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 
It's a true story. This, that's where the word barbarian came, came from. They were making fun of them because they thought they, they spoke uh, like people who were uneducated. And then the Scythians were, if the barbarians were bad, the Scythians were the worst kind of barbarian. They were the ones that the barbarians said, those people are barbarians. Right? And so it's like he's trying to, 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 to capture every extreme of person that there could be. Right? And slave and free man. We're going to talk more about what slavery meant there, but different conditions of, of, uh, of freedom. That in Christ, these distinctions evaporate. Because the only thing that matters is that you're in Christ and Christ is in you. And if that's the case, then, then all of these other distinctions just cease to have the same importance. There's only two, two types of people that really matter anymore. There's people who are in Adam and there's people who are in Christ. And everything else is gravy. It just doesn't, it just doesn't matter the same way anymore. And I think he might be saying this stuff here because, one, he's, he's been talking about these, these sins of, of the tongue, these sins of speech that are rooted in our angry hearts, and he's saying, no, you've you got to put all that aside. You're being renewed, and by the way, part of this renewal is that you are, you are in this new family, this new humanity, where all of those distinctions don't matter anymore, and so the people that you might be prone to, to hurl abusive language at and slander at, people who you used to not agree with, the Jews or the Greeks or the barbarians and so forth, you can't do that anymore because if they're in Christ, they're closer to you than the people who share those identity markers who are not in Christ. All that matters is Christ. And then in verses 12 to 17, he's going to talk more specifically about um, putting on this, this life of godliness, particularly as it relates to how we relate to one another in the church. And that might be why he is kind of a transition to the next section where he's talking specifically about relational practices.